I'm in 2 Peter chapter 3 this morning. 2 Peter chapter 3, actually be looking at the whole of 2 Peter as we work our way through this message this morning. 2 Peter chapter 3, and I welcome you to stand as we read four verses to begin with, beginning at verse number 1 of 2 Peter chapter 3. This second epistle, beloved, I now write unto you in both which I stir up your pure minds by way of remembrance, that ye may be mindful of the words which were spoken before by the holy prophets and of the commandment of us, the apostles of the Lord and Savior, knowing this first, that there shall come in the last days scoffers walking after their own lusts, And saying, where is the promise of his coming? For since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of creation. And this they willingly are ignorant of, that by the word of God, the heavens were of old, and the earth, standing out of the water and in the water, whereby the world that then was, being overflowed with water and perished, But the heavens and the earth, which are now by the same word, are kept in store, reserved unto fire against the day of judgment and perdition unto ungodly men. But beloved, be not ignorant of this one thing, that one day is with the Lord as a thousand years, and a thousand years is one day. The Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some men count slackness, but is long-suffering to usward. Not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. But the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night, in the which the heavens shall pass away with a great noise, and the elements shall melt with fervent heat, and the earth also, and the works that are therein shall be burned up. Let's conclude our reading with verse number 10. Father, we thank you this morning for your holy word. We pray as we examine it together these few moments to... This morning that you would be honored, that we would rightly divide the word of God. We'd catch a fresh glimpse of you and a fresh glimpse of where we are in our journey with you. And we'll praise you and thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. The church was attacked on every front, both without and within. The church was being attacked. Without was the persecutor of the Roman Empire, the Christians who were being put to death daily were happening. Then within was the false teaching, the immoral men who used God's grace as an excuse for sinning. And it was just, it was a mess in that day. Uh, We know what a mess is in our day of what sin and the chaos that it brings into the lives of of so many. But certainly they were facing it in the day of Peter's writing. In his first letter, Peter countered the attack from without. But in the second letter, he seems to address more the attack that is coming from within. And that is where we find ourselves here in this teaching of this lesson. Rather than offering comfort, which often we do when we're faced with the hardships and 
the challenges of life and the onslaught of the devil, many times we're attempting to raise each other's hands up and encourage one another to hang in there, brother, until the end. And you'll make it. But instead of doing that, we find Peter here challenging the Christians. He's speaking to them who are threatened by the efforts of those who would sabotage the church from within. And in essence, the words of Peter are are simply this. I challenge you. I challenge you in the midst of the hardships of life that you're facing and the persecution of the church. I challenge you. Now let's look a little bit into what that challenge is. As the Lord would help us here in 2 Peter. I go to the first chapter of 2 Peter. And from there, uh, verses 1 to 10, bear out a spiritual productivity. That he's challenging them to have. Even though they're faced with the hardships that they're facing. Verse number 8, he kind of sums it up. For if these things be in you and abound, they make you that ye shall neither be barren nor unfruitful. I'm challenging you, Peter says, because you are facing hardships, but you can come forth as gold. You can still be a spiritual success and come forth through this with strength and with power, regardless of the onslaught of the enemy. And so he's saying, if you do this, you'll neither be barren nor unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. False teachings, immoral lifestyles, they were threatening to destroy the church. It was the battle from within. Peter saw in spiritual productivity and an effective force for countering the efforts of the enemies of the church. If we can be productive in our spiritual life. It's never a time to let down our spiritual guard and our spiritual desire to be more like Jesus. How can we do that? What must we do to be a success spiritually? Edmund Burke said all that is essential for the triumph of evil is that good men do nothing. And that's Where the devil would like us to be, to do nothing spiritually. Just kind of sit on our hands and feel sorry for ourselves that we're living in such a chaotic time. But Peter, I believe, would challenge us this morning. He would say, I I challenge you, the church of today, the local church of Lebanon, I challenge you to add to your faith. You need faith, but you need to be adding to that. It's not a time to be sitting back. It's a time to be, to be making it stronger, making it better, making a greater effort at being all that God would have us to be. And so he's challenging. Notice that spiritual production begins with the people we are, and then it moves on to the good that we do. So he's, he's dealing with who we are and then what we do with that, our efforts from there. And so he challenges us to take eight steps of spiritual productivity in the first seven verses, I believe it would be, that he gives it to us here. Give all diligence, verse number five, add to your faith. Spiritual productivity begins with faith. Our faith in God needs to be strong. It needs to be established. It needs to be settled. Everything goes back to our faith. 
Faith is a strong conviction. It's something of a strong conviction within, as, as we read of in Hebrews chapter 11, that faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. Through faith we understand that the worlds were framed by the word of God, so that the things which are seen were not made of things which do appear. I, I read that, that uh, funny little story one time of someone who was boasting of how they didn't need God. I don't need God. I don't need God in my life. They didn't need God, but then they were challenged to create a human. And they said, well, I need some dirt. And God said, go make some. Go make some. Just the time an individual thinks they don't need God, lo and behold, there's something they need that only he can provide or has provided. Just the mentality to even think about doing something comes from God. I mean, it all comes from God. It begins with faith. We must believe that he is and that he's a rewarder of them that diligently seek him and that he created all things and he made all things for us today. Praise his name. Well, we certainly read in the scriptures of how all things were made by him. So we need faith to believe. Then he says, add to your faith virtue. Verse 5, faith must express itself not in a retreat to a monastery. No, faith does not express itself by sitting on its hands, but faith expresses itself by moving forward courageously, doing something for God. Virtue speaks of courage. Virtue speaks of Christ-likeness. Virtue is a moral power. It's a moral energy. It's a vigor of the soul. The virtue. Add to your faith virtue. Then he says, add to your virtue knowledge. This is the knowledge of what to do and when to do it. Boy, sometimes we sure need that, don't we? It's good practical advice. Practical knowledge. Knowledge which gives one discernment of true, uh, uh, that is, of that which is true from false teaching or right from wrong. It gives us that discernment. We need faith. We need virtue. We need knowledge. Then he says in verse 6, add to your knowledge temperance. It means literally the ability to take a grip on oneself, to practice self-control. Boy, do we need that in this day. To get a grip on oneself. Self-control in the face of temptation. It speaks of one holding himself. As we read in Titus chapter 1 and verse 8. To be sober. To be just. To be holy. To be temperate. He's challenging us. Get a hold of yourself. Get a hold of yourself. And by the grace of God we can. We need faith, virtue, knowledge, temperance. Then he says, add to your temperance, patience. Cicero defines patience as the voluntary and daily suffering of hard and difficult things for the sake of honor and usefulness. That was his definition of it. To endure, to have the patience. It also represents steadfastness. It, it, it speaks of remaining under staying power, a staying power, as we read of in Colossians chapter 1 and verse 11, strengthened with all might according to his glorious power unto all patience and long suffering with joyfulness. 
Patience is a perseverance amid difficulties. Something that just keeps on keeping on, keeps on hanging on amid difficulties. It helps us live a life that pleases the Lord to have patience. And then we need to add to patience godliness. This implies, I believe, a real trust in God. A real trust in Him. Christ's divine power has given us everything we need to live a life of godliness. His power gives to us everything we need to live pleasing in His sight. And so that is why Peter is challenging us, challenging them, still challenging us today, to add this godliness into the equation of our life. Christ's divine power is that which gives us the ability to live a life of godliness. Entire sanctification is included among the all things that he speaks of in verse 3 that God gives to us. He says, add to godliness brotherly kindness. In verse 7, to be spiritually productive, we must care enough about others to become involved in meeting their needs. Amen. Peter's challenging us to have brotherly kindness. It comes by a deliberate choice. We see the need. We choose to help where we can, to step in, to do our duty with brotherly kindness. Jesus said it like this, love your enemies. Bless them that curse you. Do good to them that hate you. Pray for them which despitefully use you and persecute you. Those are the words of Christ. That's brotherly love. That's extending that love of Christ back to another, even though they might not be deserving of it. That doesn't matter. Our duty is to have brotherly love. Amen. He's challenging us to this. And then in verse 7, he also sums it up with charity. Add to brotherly kindness, charity. The first seven steps to spiritual productivity must culminate in charity or Christian love. Love is the climax, as Paul has it in, in uh, the, the, the letter to the church at Corinth. 1 Corinthians 13, in verse 13, Now abideth faith hope and love, but the greatest of these is love. It's charity, isn't it? Amen. We need to add charity into the equation. In light of Peter's challenge to spiritual productivity, we need to be asking ourselves, I need to be asking myself, what on earth am I doing for heaven's sake? What on earth am I doing for heaven's sake? Oh God, would you challenge me to spiritual productivity? This path is a good one. Any other way that we can meet the criteria and do what God would bid us to do is likewise good. Peter is giving us a great challenge here as to how to do that. He says, not only do I challenge you to spiritual productivity, but secondly, I believe he's challenging us to doctrinal integrity. A doctrinal integrity for what you believe determines how you live, doesn't it? What you believe determines how you live. So doctrinal integrity has to be very much a part of our life. Peter's stated purpose of this letter is to warn Christians of the destructive effects of certain false teachers. And he addresses it in chapter 2. Verse 1, verses 18 and 19 
Uh, But there were false prophets also among the people, even as there shall be false teachers among you. Privily shall bring in damnable heresies, even denying the Lord that brought them and bring upon themselves swift destruction. That's verse 1 over to verses 18 and 19 here in chapter 2. For when they speak great swelling words of vanity, they allure through the lust of the flesh, through much wantonness, those that were clean escape. From them who live in error, while they promise them liberty, they themselves are the servants of corruption. For of whom a man is overcome, of the same as he brought into bondage. So Peter's addressing this issue of doctrinal integrity. William Barclay points out that four, uh, four points out four characteristics of a false prophet that Peter is warning of. What might they be? Well, he said he's, he's more interested in gaining popularity than he is telling the truth, for one thing. That's a sure sign of a false prophet. He'd rather uh, have popularity than to tell you the truth. So tell you whatever you want to hear, in other words. He's, secondly, he is interested in personal gain. Thirdly, he is undisciplined in his own personal life. And fourthly, Barclay said he leads men further away from God rather than leading people to God. He's a false prophet. You can count on it. He's not telling truths. He does not have doctrinal integrity. We're trying to identify it. We want to make sure we have it. And like so many false prophets today, they didn't try to start their own religious movements, but they rather infiltrated ones that were already going on And tried to turn people away. Steal sheep and cause people to to get confused about doctrine and about the integrity that they need to have. And so they they infiltrate the local church. I don't know what the numbers are today. Back a few years ago when I had looked at some numbers for the uh, the cults in America. All of the cults that we have. The sects and the cults. Some 350 at that point. Most of them claim to base their doctrine on the word of God. So we've got we've to have some doctrinal incredi- uh, integrity so that we can be alert to these things. I mean, they say they're following Christ too. Now I'm confused. They don't believe like you do. How are we supposed to sort it out? Right here. Right here. The word of God. We've got... The final authority is the Word of God. Our doctrinal integrity comes from the Word of God. So Lord, they're teaching this, they're teaching that. What do I believe? Would you help me, blessed Holy Spirit, to be able to sort this out? To sense by the leadership of the Holy Spirit who's right and who's false. Because if you listen to all the voices and you chase after all of the different sects and cults, you're going to be so confused you won't know which way to turn. There can be profit in study and gaining insights and understanding. But friend, don't don't let somebody talk you out of good, solid, practical, doctrinal integrity. If it doesn't measure up to the word of God, it's false. We must turn aside, turn away from it. Lord, I want to be spiritually productive and I want to have doctrinal integrity. That's what Peter's challenging us to. Thirdly, finally... I believe he's challenging us here in chapter 3 to a joyous expectancy. 
There were those things of chapter 1, those things of chapter 2. But ultimately, I challenge you to joyous expectancy. I read most of the chapter to you already here today. At the ascension of Christ, the angel said to the disciples, this same Jesus who went up is coming back down. He's coming back. This same one who went, as you've seen him go into heaven, he's going to come back in like manner as you've seen him go. And so Peter is bringing us back to that. And he's saying, church, don't ever lose. I challenge you, don't lose that anticipation. Jesus is coming. He is coming. We have something to live for. We have heaven to gain. We have hell to shun. We must live uprightly. We must live with integrity. We must live a spiritually productive life because Jesus is coming again. And we must be ready because if we miss his coming, if we miss going to heaven when Jesus returns, friend, we've missed it all. We've missed it all. And so there needs to be a joyous expectancy. From that day when Jesus ascended, why the literal physical return of Christ has been our joyous expectancy. In the 216 chapters of the New Testament, there are 318 references to the second coming or one out of every 30 verses in the New Testament. There's some reference to the second coming. 23 of the 27 New Testament books refer to this great event that's going to happen. 23 of the 27. So for every prophecy on the first coming of Christ, there are eight on his second coming. That should get our attention. What joyous expectancy, as sure as he came the first time, he is coming again. He is coming back. And we better be ready for him. We better be prepared for him. Not everybody shares that expectancy. As we read here, verses 3 and 4, knowing this first chapter 3, that there shall come in the last days scoffers walking after their own lust, saying, Where's the promise of his coming? For since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning. The thing about the heretics that most concerned Peter was their denial of the second coming of Jesus Christ. Somehow man can get it in his head that if they can deny Jesus is coming again, that, you know, then it ain't so. It's not going to happen. But friend, it's going to happen. Regardless of who tries to explain it away, Jesus is coming again. And we can have a joyful expectancy of his coming. The delay of his coming is an expression of God's grace, isn't it? Allowing more time, more opportunity to find another soul who's ready, who needs to be snatched, as it were, as a brand from the burning, that they might find Christ, find the experience of forgiveness, and get in a right relationship with God and begin to do the spiritual formation that I've endeavored to speak about today of a productive life for God. The delay has happened. So that there can be more preparation. We notice in verses 8 and 9. Beloved be not ignorant of this one thing. That one day with the Lord is as a thousand years. And a thousand years is one day. The Lord's not slack concerning his promise. 
as some men count slackness, but is long-suffering to usward, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. We need to view this time as God views this time. We need to view it as He views it. With God, one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years as one day. The promise of His coming will be fulfilled. We read in verse 10, The day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night, in the which the heavens shall pass away with a great noise. The elements shall melt with fervent heat. The earth also and the works that are therein shall be burned up. Notice two things quickly with me about His coming. Number one is that it will happen unexpectedly. Sad for the soul that's not expecting His return, who hasn't been looking for His return. It will happen unexpectedly. He says it will come as a thief in the night. The second thing I would notice about His coming is that it's going to be dramatic. He's coming unexpectedly and He's coming dramatically. You ain't seen nothing yet like it's going to be when Christ returns. It's going to be dramatic. The heavens shall pass away with a great noise. Just that alone. It's just, wow, it's something to think about. We can't comprehend it. All of this requires preparation. We must be ready. The thing in which Peter is supremely interested is the moral implication of the second coming. When these things happen, when these things occur, we must be ready. We must be. How can we be found without spot? How can we be found with blameless and ready, looking for His coming? It's only by the cleansing blood of Jesus Christ, the forgiving grace of God, experiencing His forgiveness, experiencing the power of His transformation of our life from sin to godliness, from unrighteousness to righteousness, from serving Satan to serving God, from serving self to serving Christ. Hallelujah. No longer enslaved by the things of this world and by the things of the devil, but in set free by the power of God, by the power of Christ, living in His presence, living with His power. We need the shed blood of Jesus to be applied to our heart. Would you be found without spot and blameless should Christ return today? Should He return? And He could. This could be the day. This could be the moment. When he returns, you can be found ready through, through faith in Jesus Christ as God's Son. You can be found ready. Through the forgiving grace of God, you can be found ready. Jesus died to set you free from your sins. He has the power to deliver even today. If he has the power to come back, he has the power to get you ready for his coming. Amen. Is the blood applied? Do you know Jesus as your Savior? I challenge you this morning to a spiritual productivity. I challenge you to a doctrinal integrity. I challenge you to a joyous expectancy. We must be ready. We must be ready. I'd like us to stand. 
And I wonder as we turn in our hymnals, let's turn to song number 449 in our hymnals today, number 449. We're going to sing about the blood. There's power in the blood. May your faith be such this morning if, if you don't know that you're saved, if you don't know that your sins have been forgiven. If you're yet living in your sin, living in bondage, living enslaved to the devil, I want you to know there's power in the blood to deliver you right now, right here this morning. Amen. If you would be free, you can be free. Let's respond. Let's respond. If you have a need, why don't you come and let us pray with you this morning. of the, some of the tricks of the devil that he, he loves to try to cause us to convince ourselves that I don't need this religious stuff. You're right. You don't need the religious stuff. You need a, a relationship with Jesus Christ. Amen. You need more than just church. You need Christ. You need him living and dwelling in you. A relationship with him. So if you're struggling with this religious stuff or struggling with the church stuff, cast that aside. Look to Jesus. Lord, I want a right relationship with you. Would you help me to find that? Would you help me to experience it? If it means this altar, then I'm willing to come to this altar and seek you and to know you. Amen. Let's sing together the third verse. Would you be wise?
Anyone else want to respond to this altar? I welcome you to do so. I welcome those who would desire to come and pray with Art. We would welcome you to do that. If you have a need, why don't you bring it to this altar? If you must go, feel free to do so. Don't hesitate to reach out to us. If we can, if we can help guide you and direct you, it doesn't have to be here. Call us to your house. Ask for an appointment. We'll spend time with you. We want people to experience a relationship with Jesus Christ. Amen. That's the bottom line. And if you don't have it, it's our prayer for you to experience it. Let's pray together and then we'll be dismissed. But if you need to go, feel free to go quietly.